Let's cut an arc back to the beginning. Peril, privilege, pleasure, plan. Remember those? Um, I still feel a trembling more now than I did then, I think, because I'm just aware of how diverse you are, that I could mislead you, especially after some of those questions that clearly signified I have misled some of you. So I'm trembling that the Lord will, will say someday, you really said a stupid thing that wasn't helpful. So test all things, hold fast to what is good, be good Bereans, I still count it an even higher privilege to have been with you precisely because of the extent of your influence, the the thought that you would take away from here something from John and me and and, and the worship um, is an amazing privilege. Um, The pleasure has increased. I love standing here with you. I love what I'm about to talk about. Can't think of anything I'd rather talk about than showing Christ in this last session. So uh, don't, don't pity me too much that I had to cross a lot of time zones to get here. I'm loving what I'm doing. I'm happy to do it. And, and I think we're on plan. Um, God does everything for his glory. That was number one. And then... Feel Christ, think Christ, preach Christ, and today show Christ. I think we're where we we ought to be. So let me try to sum up and then launch into what we have here in our last hour together. God is radically God-centered. He does everything to uphold and display his magnificence, his beauty, the, the panorama of his perfections in the world. He does it through Jesus Christ. The glory of God is the glory of Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God, and so he mediates to God and from God, and he was God, and therefore the glory terminates on him, them one, glorious, holy trinity. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, full of grace and truth, and we beheld his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth, and of that fullness we have all received grace upon grace. And the essence, or maybe I should say the most ultimate experience of that grace is not that he makes much of me, but that he enables me to enjoy making much of him forever at the cost of his son's life. And not only is the ultimate expression of his love the gift of himself enjoyed, but he has set up the universe and the spiritual world such that my enjoyment of him is an essential means by which I make much of him, which I put in this little catchphrase, God is most glorified in me when I am most satisfied in him, which brings implications galore. But before I mention the implications... The only satisfaction in God that glorifies God is satisfaction rooted in right views of God. And God has given us a brain to find the right views of God in a book. So I was talking with some brothers between the sessions about this issue of theology and passion and and how should passion be expressed and how important is the... maintenance of good, solid theology. And I just want to say that I think the best protection of the proper expressions of passion is to count doctrine high and not low. If I smell in a group that doctrine is minimized, 
I'm moving back rather than moving in. Or I'm moving in if they let me preach. (laughs) And I, I think rather than the need to kind of pick at particular weaknesses or errors, the big weaknesses don't minimize truth in your expressions of or pursuit of pleasures in God. That's sort of the sum of my, my life. The implications of the truth that God is glorified in us when we're satisfied in Him are that your people should never be taught to choose between their maximum joy and God's maximum glory, which I grew up thinking you had to do. I had to choose between God's will and my happiness or between God's glory and my pleasure. You only have to do that if you're willing to settle for something less than fullest joy and longest joy. You have shown me the path of life in your presence is How much joy? Fullness of joy at your right hand are pleasures for how long? Forever. If you can offer me something better than that, I will take it. Whatever religion. God is best. There isn't anything better than fullness of joy forever. 99% for 80 years, no thank you. So your people don't ever have to choose, but you've got a huge responsibility to wean them off the breast of the world because they are addicted to that milk and they can't even imagine what you're talking about. They have, many of them, no tastes for this pleasure. And then, of course, the implication for you is that you seek your joy because Hebrews 13, 17 says, let the pastors do this with joy rather than groaning, for that would be of no advantage to your people. And you want to love your people, and therefore you must seek your joy. And another implication is that you then seek their joy. Because 2 Corinthians 1.24 says, I am a worker with you for your joy. I don't lord it over your faith. I come alongside you to work for your joy. And then you spend the rest of your life preaching the unsearchable riches of Christ that will awaken your people to his glory and beholding the glory of the Lord, they will be changed from one degree of glory to the next and represent Christ in the world well, which brings us to this message, showing Christ. Here's the question I'm trying to answer. I'll tell you my answer. And then we'll go to the Bible. A lot of people are concerned, and I'm concerned, that a message like I've been emphasizing, namely, maximize your joy forever, might produce people who are all wrapped up in themselves and their joy and their satisfaction And the world can go to hell in a handbasket as far as they're concerned because I've got God and I've got joy and I'm going home and he's glorified in that. Who cares about the world? So that that would be a horrible inference from what I've said. And so what I need to do is give an account of why I believe embracing the truth that your pursuit of your pleasure in God will not produce indifference to the world, but radical, life-sacrificing risks for the sake of the world. That's today's effort. So I invite you to open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. 
my thesis is you can't love other people biblically unless you pursue your maximum joy in God. You can't. Pursuing and finding your pleasure in all that God is for you in Jesus is the only sufficient biblical power to love people. That's my thesis. So it's not just that you may love people if you're happy in God. You can't love people if you're not. That's my thesis. So here we are at 2 Corinthians 8. Let's read verses 1 through maybe 4 and then drop down to verse 8 to pick up a key word. I want you to, we want you to know, brothers, maybe I better set the geographic stage here because maybe everybody be a little confused by the words. Macedonia is uh, up there in Greece and Achaia is down here, uh, Corinth and Athens, and here's Philippi and Thessalonica, Berea. And uh, Paul is writing to these folks, the Corinthians, about what happened up here in Macedonia, like um, Philippi, I say. And he's trying to motivate these Corinthians to be generous. All of chapters 8 and 9 are about an offering being taken up for the poor in Jerusalem. So it's about loving the poor. In Jerusalem, and the uh, Macedonians really came through. And now Paul is writing about that for the Corinthians. That's the situation. And what I want you to listen for is does this, these first three verses, give us a definition of love? Because if I'm going to talk about loving the world or loving people flowing from a heart satisfied in God, we've got to get the definition right here because the world has different ideas about what love is than the Bible does. So here we go. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction... Their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own free will, that is, they weren't under any constraint, it was a free offering, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. So they really wanted to do this. It was not forced upon them. Now drop down to verse 8. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others, namely those Macedonians I just referred to, that your love also is genuine. Now you can see why I'm picking up verse 8. Because when he says... I told you that story so that you'd be motivated to go in that direction and I wouldn't have to twist your arm and be apostolic authoritative with you on this offering because I wanted to be an expression of your love also. That is, your love just like like it was their love. Are you with me? Because now I've got a name for what happened in verses 1 to 3. It's called love. Okay? So let's go back and see what love looks like, where it came from, what it does, and we'll have an amazing picture for how love happens in the church for the world or for the poor or for the hurting or for whoever needs it. We want you to know, verse 1, brothers, about the grace of God. So when Paul showed up in Philippi and Thessalonica and Berea, Um, he preached and grace came down. Remember? Lydia 
the Lord opened her heart. The demon-possessed Zeus-saying girl freed. A jailer saved. Any more? At least those three. What a way to start a church, right? A businesswoman, a slave girl who had been demonized, and a, a civic employee. So grace came down. Grace came down. People got saved in Philippi. Four, verse two, in a severe test of affliction, this is how he knows that grace is operating here. For in a severe test of affliction, okay, affliction came. They, they beat Paul with rods and they put him in jail. I don't know what happened to the rest when he left, but affliction came. When, you, when, when the church is planted, it doesn't take away affliction, it increases affliction. This is why Jesus taught us to tell people, count the cost. You don't invite people to an easy life. You invite people to trouble. It goes up. Not down. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy. So the joy became abundant in the hearts of the believers in Macedonia because grace was coming down on them. And affliction was going up, which means the joy wasn't in circumstances. You see that in the next phrase. Their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty. Okay, so afflictions went up and poverty didn't go away. At least not quick. So afflictions increasing Poverty remaining, joy abounding. Where was it? Rooted. <laughs> Grace. It was rooted in God. I hate the prosperity gospel because of this text. The glory of Christ is shown when life looks like you shouldn't be happy. And you are. That's where Christ gets most glory, which is why it's so hard to be a Christian in America and Australia. We look like we should be happy. We have nice clothing. We drive cars. Food is on our table every day. Do you know that there is a refrigerator in my hotel room? There is a dishwasher in my hotel room. There is a washing machine in my hotel room. I've never been in a hotel with a washing machine and a dishwasher. I came to Australia to find prosperity. You are in a deadly land. Because here's where the glory of God really shines. You know, my word to the prosperity people is, Getting people to be happy because God gives them what makes the world happy is zero witness. <laughs> Did you get that? I mean, this is not rocket science. The world is happy when they're prosperous, and now we Christians, we're happy when we're prosperous. What? Just a different Butler to bring us the meal? I get worked up about this. Okay. I don't know all the answers to living in a prosperous land. I just know it's dangerous. And I live in one. Because afflictions increased. Poverty didn't go away, and these people were skyrocketing happy. So happy 
what happened? This is my answer. This is my defense of my thesis. Let's read it. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity. That is, they're loving people. They're sacrificing out of their poverty and they're loving the poor in Jerusalem. And look how much they're loving them in verse 4. Begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. These are poor people under affliction pleading that a second offering be taken in the service. That's what they're doing. Now, that's crazy, glorious, wonderful Christianity. And when the world sees it, they have to ask, what's the reason for the hope within you? They don't have to ask that for the prosperity folks because they know what the reason is. They're prosperous. That's why they're happy. But here, there's no explanation. They're under affliction, they're in poverty, and they are lavishly saying, we're so happy. You know, I'm not making this up. This is really here. Can you see this? This is amazing. Their abundance of joy, which isn't in the absence of affliction and isn't in the presence of prosperity, but is in the grace of God, their abundance of joy is now overflowing. I could not have asked for a better text to make my point. I I hope you believe I got my point from the text. I mean, I've been talking about this for so many years, it can look like, hey, he's got a point, now he's going to find a text. Not when I was 23, I didn't have a point. All I had was texts, trying to make sense out of texts. I'm still trying to make sense out of a lot of texts, but this one is glorious. So how would you define love on the basis of those three verses? I've got two definitions of love that I'll... One's simple and one's complex. Simple are helpful and and simple are vulnerable to being misused. Here's my simple one. Love is the overflow of joy in God that meets the needs of others. Love is the overflow of joy in God that meets the needs of others. You can see why I say we better define love from the Bible rather than the world because the world would never, ever define love that way. God doesn't even enter into the picture. Here's my complex one. The word overflow can sound a little too automatic and a little too passive. Like, a spring gets full and it just overflows. And, and that's here. I mean, that's the Bible word. It's, it's, it's just abounding. It's abounding. When, when a glass gets full, the next thing it does is spill. And if there's some thirsty people at the bottom, they get helped. And that's what love is. But, but love does involve more than passive spilling. It often involves great pursuit, great effort. Because it can kill you, right? It can, it can keep you up all night. It can take you to a very dangerous place in the world. It can cause you to serve in a trash dump for 25 years, things like that. So my, my other definition would be to say that love is the, the, uh, the effort of joy to expand by including others in it, flowing from joy in God. So the the grace-based, maybe say it like that, the grace-based or God-rooted intentionality, uh, will, effort to expand the joy that I have in God I wanted to get bigger. I'm a greedy hedonist. I want fullest possible joy. I know that if I keep it to myself and that needy person doesn't get included in it, my joy is going to go rotten and, you know, like the Dead Sea. And 
I'm going to push it out and include you in it. Because when you are happy in God, like I'm happy in God, our combined happiness in God is bigger. One plus one equals three. It's just the way it works. So that's my, my definition of love. Now, let's, let's do a little bit of testing to see if we're on the right track. Because I could stop here. I think I've made my case. Maybe, maybe not. Um, lots more text to throw in here. But, but the essence has been said. Namely, if you ask me what love is, I'm going to say it's the overflow or the extension of my joy to other people. Rooted in my joy in God. And if my joy in God is absent, this text malfunctions. It doesn't happen. Or if it happens, you'd probably call it legalism. You better give to those poor saints in Jerusalem because God will zap you if you don't or something along that line. And Okay, you can make it happen. You can make social action happen. You can make mercy ministries in your church happen. You can pound on people enough and create enough guilt in rich Australians and Americans that they go out on weekend and do some good deeds and sleep better that night. You can do it that way. It's not called love. It's just not called love. Love is when grace has come down. Joy has come up and love overflows. If this piece is missing, the the first four messages in this series, whatever this is, it ain't love. So you can see how important the order of these messages is. Let's try to confirm whether I'm over-interpreting these three verses. I'm always kind of nervous, like, am I getting too much from just a little text. It's a big book, right? So let's go to chapter 9, verse, um, start at verse 7. Well, just stay at verse 7. So he's still on this motivation thing to get get the giving, what it ought to be. Each one must give. As he has made up his mind, not reluctantly or under compulsion, no arm twisting. Why? For God loves a cheerful giver. Now, I think that phrase, cheerful giver, is a description of verse 2 of chapter 8. Their abundance of joy overflowed in a wealth of generosity. God loves that. How many people over the years have said to me, John, um, what matters is the giving, not how you feel about it. Just put the money in the offering plate. And I said, look, if you teach your people to be indifferent to whether they are glad in their giving, you are teaching your people to sin. (laughs) Because it says God loves a cheerful giver. If you say it doesn't matter whether you're cheerful, you're saying it doesn't matter whether you please God. I call that sin. This is big. So I think we're on the right track, don't you? I mean, there it is in verses 1 to 4 of chapter 8. Here it is again in chapter 9, verse 7. God wants one kind of giver because the other kind is legal. He wants a happy giver. Happy in what? Happy in God that overflows to meet the needs of others. Turn to chapter 12 of Romans. Just to see it with your own eyes, or you can just listen. Verse 8. 
encouraging people to use their gifts in a proper way, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes with generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Now, if you say to me, what matters is just the doing of mercy, not the cheerfulness, I see. Well, you can say that from whatever ethical theory you're coming from, but biblically, God doesn't like mercy ministries that aren't flowing from a heart that are happy in him. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Now, pause, little little princess. I think we've had enough interaction here in the Q&A time and enough qualifications along the way that this might not need saying, but it, it might need saying. I'm going to say it again. When I say happy in Jesus, I know that you have all kinds of semantic associations in your mind with these words that I'm using that don't accord with what I mean. And so I'm constantly trying to overcome your preconceptions about words happy and pleasure and delight. I mean, you, you bring your baggage, we all do, to those words and then you dump it in and I use one and you say, yuck. That's, I mean, the only, you know, maybe the only thing pleasure means to you is sex or drunkenness. And of, of course then we have a hard time communicating. So this is an effort to overcome some of those semantic mistakes to impute to my words your meaning. When I talk about joy, pleasure, delight, satisfaction, happiness, they're all interchangeable for me because they're all over the Bible. The Bible doesn't pick and choose about, like, joy is the big, deep thing and happiness is the superficial thing. You cannot ever, you can't prove that from the Bible. The Bible is indiscriminate in its use of happiness language. Pleasure, contentment, satisfaction, delight, happiness. They're all in the Bible and they're all gloriously, spiritually, powerfully Godward. And if they're not for you, fix it. Really. Get your language sanctified. Get Bible meaning into crappy old words. Fill it up. Otherwise, your vocabulary is going to be stunted. And when your vocabulary is stunted, very often your heart and mind are stunted. So, having said that, I now want to say... I don't mean anything silly, light, superficial, and incompatible with pain, sorrow, weeping. And here, just a few texts. Just so you know, I'm aware of this. I'm not just aware of it because it's in the Bible. I'm 65 years old. I'm 42 years married. I have five children, 38 to 15. I serve a church with could just document the sorrows of these 31 years so bad you would, you know, the mid-90s, the horror years of zero growth and down and immorality on the staff and 236 people walking away and being accused of being the most proud person in the world. And so please don't, don't, don't say, oh, here's an American who flies in here and talks about joy. Just another one of those silly guys. Weep with those who weep, Romans 12, 15. Romans 9, 2, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart for my kinsmen according to the flesh. Now, Paul said, rejoice always, and again I say rejoice, and he said, not only give thanks for all things, in all things, he said give thanks for all things, and here, Romans 9, 2, he says, I have unceasing anguish. 
which means 2 Corinthians 10.6, sorrowful yet always rejoicing. Could have turned it around. Rejoicing and always sorrowful. You handle that? Does that help you? Does that disabuse you of any kind of superficial praise God, any cow, anyhow kind of temperament or personality that I'm, I'm, I'm angling for? When, when I say grace came down and joy came up and overflowed in love, remember it's sandwiched by increasing affliction and present poverty. 2 Corinthians 7, 5 afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8, utterly burdened beyond strength so that we despaired of life itself. 2 Corinthians eleven twenty eight. the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. So please, I'm just pleading with you not to caricature these messages. It will happen, but I've done my best. Acts chapter 20, verse 35. My point has been made, and all I'm doing now is pushing it with text into your heart. Because it's, it's all over the place. So here we go. We use all the time. I'll just quit when my time's up. I got about another, another 18 minutes. And when I'm done, when that's over, we're done. And, and that'll be that. And you can spend the rest of your life finding the other texts. <laughs> Acts chapter 20. This is pastorally so, so important. So here he is talking to the elders, beach at Miletus, uh, the elders from Ephesus. And, and one of the last things he says is verse 35, in all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak. It's loving, that's so loving. And remember the words, remember, I'm going to come back to that word, the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, It is more blessed to give than to receive. Okay. Jesus says, extending yourself, staying up late. For Paul, it was staying up late, working to make some tents, not to burden the churches. Just extending yourself beyond what you think you can do will make you happier. I think that's what blessedness, it's, it's, a, it's a big word. It's, it's just the, the, the well-being of your soul. And you all know this, right? You sleep better after a day of loving people than a day of glutting yourself on whatever. You do. It, it, it's it's, it's tor- short-term and, and long-term. Now, th- there is an ethical theory that says reward comes with acts of kindness. Rewards come. But if you seek the reward, you have undermined the virtue of the kindness. That is everywhere in ethical theory. I remember reading book after book like that and article after article back in my graduate days. And I just kept shaking my head and saying, I can't find that in the Bible. And this is a key text where I can't find it. Look, if that were true, here's the way the text would have to read. By working hard in this way, help the weak and forget the words of the Lord Jesus, how he said it is more blessed to give than to receive. Because as soon as you remember them, they contaminate your virtue, don't they? I mean, you're just about to do a good deed for somebody selflessly with no view to reward at all. And Jesus says, remember, you're going to be blessed in this. You, say, oh, you just wrecked the whole thing. <laughs> I mean, I was just on a good selfless track. And, and now you've inserted my happiness in there as a motive. 
Yeah, that's pretty profound, I think. Now, my answer to the, the, the philosophical and ethical question, so, so how is it love if you're, if you're taking a meal to somebody who's sick for your happiness? How's that love for them? And my answer is, my goal in taking the meal to them is so that there would be awakened in them a similar joy that I have in God being driven and their joy and my joy together would be bigger. In other words, the reason it's love is because my aim is to include them in my reward. Yeah, I want reward. Good night, I want reward. I want to be happier for having served you than if I didn't serve you. And the reason that's not unloving to you is because I want you in it. I want you in it big time. I want to go to heaven with you together. I'm not using you to get to heaven like a squash. Now I'm in heaven. I'm picking you up. I'll die for you to get you with me in heaven. I'd try this. It's 8 o'clock at night. I'm playing with Talitha, like when she was a little girl. It's playtime. I always had playtime with my kids after supper. And uh, phone rings, and, and uh, Helen, an older lady in our church, I'm making this up. Helen uh, has just had a, a parent heart attack. She's very old. They don't know if she'll live. Would I come? Look, there are a lot of other staff, and I'm playing with my girl. I mean, I'm not saying this. I'm thinking this, and this is not a, a good pastoral way to think. <laughs> but I, I say yes, and I hang up, and I say, sorry, Talith, I've got to run. It's, um, it's an emergency, and oh, daddy. So I'm, I'm on my way to the hospital, and I'm thinking, I don't want to do this. I'd rather be at home, okay? This is not the best way. It's not over the overflow of joy. So I'm defective. I'm a defective pastor in the duty mode. And, and I'm, I, I go into the hospital, and, and I, know my, I know my own theology. So I know I'm, 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 in a, I'm in a bad way. So in the elevator, I'm praying, God, please, come. Come. Restore to me the joy of my salvation. Restore to me the joy of my hope. Restore to me the joy of the gospel. Give me the joy of ministry Make me useful to this woman. Now, when I walk in there, he regularly does that. He really does. Often he does it at the moment of touch. So she's lying there with tubes in her nose, and, and I don't know if she's about gone, and, and she's got her eyes closed, and I put my hand on her arm. She wakes up, and she says, Oh, Pest, you didn't need to come. It's the older people in my church always say, you do need to come. The young people said, it's about time. <laughs> I, I just love old people. I love old people. So I, how would, how would Helen feel when she says, oh, Pastor, you do need to come? Say, I know, and I didn't want to come. <laughs> because... Because it's playtime and, and I didn't feel like it. I don't think Helen would feel loved by that statement. Even though duty brought me there. This is pretty profound when you think it through. Why wouldn't, why wouldn't she feel loved by my saying, I'm just here out of duty, Helen? Pastors do this sort of thing. This is what we're supposed to do, and I do what I'm supposed to do. I read it in the book. You do it whether you feel like it or not, and I'm here to pray for you. (laughs) You're all laughing. You're all laughing. That is so healthy that you're laughing because it means your heart's right. Your heart's right. And the reason your heart is right is because you know that the right thing to say at that moment would have been something like, oh, pastor, you didn't have to come. And I say, Helen, you know, as I walked in the room and put my hand on your arm, 
the Lord gave me such a sense of joy in him and that my being here would make me happier than staying at home. And my being here to pray for you that God would strengthen your faith, would increase my own faith and my joy. And I think when she hears talk like that, she'd feel really good. Even though I'm selfish as you can be. I'm making a point. Nothing would make me happier than to be here. My joy is going to increase when I'm here. My hope and faith will be strengthened as yours is strengthened. All that's, it is more blessed to give than to receive because that's love. I'll ask you this question. Do you feel more love when people do kind things for you dutifully and maybe even begrudgingly or when they do them joyfully? And the answer is, you feel more love when they do them joyfully. God loves a cheerful pastoral visit, not the other kind. I don't think we can love Helen if we're not happy in God. That's all we have to give her, especially at this moment in her life, is our joy in God. And if she picks up on it, ours increases, which is what we want. Let's go to Hebrews. Got nine minutes. And I'm jealous for Hebrews. Going to give you a whirlwind tour of something I hope you never forget. Because I've never forgotten it the first time I saw this. It's a series of four texts. 10, 11, 12, and 13 chapters. Chapter 10, chapter 11, chapter 12, same point, same point, same point, same point. And when you see that, you know you're on to something. You're really on to something. And I'm still trying to prove that you love people empowered by your pursuit of gladness in all that God is for you in Jesus. And if you abandon your pursuit of the joy that you have in all that God is for you in Jesus, you can't love people. That's my thesis. I'm still on it. For nine more minutes, here we go. Chapter 10, verse 32. Recall the former days when after you were enlightened. That means in the early Christian days, you were, your eyes were open, you, brought, you were brought to faith. You endured a hard struggle. So here we are again, just like the Corinthians. Affliction is going up, not down. And with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. Ah, okay, so... Some were mistreated, and then you weren't, and then you became partners with them, and you got in trouble by being partners with them because that sure was a loving thing to do, but you got in big trouble for doing it. Verse 34, explanation. For you had compassion on those in prison. So some of your comrades, you'd say mates, I suppose, they've been thrown in prison. You're not in prison, but you believe what they believe, and you're faced with a crisis. Look, if we go, if we go visit them, they're going to know we believe what they believe, and who knows what might happen to our kids or our houses. So, we better preserve the witness and go underground. Just not, we're not going to visit. They did the opposite. Why did they love them like that? Okay, the answer is really clear. Verse 34: You had compassion. That's love on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property because you knew that you yourselves have a better possession and an abiding one. Are you, what's your motive going to be? Where are you going to have strength to risk your life, your kids' life, your houses to do what God calls you to do? Where where are you going to get it? The answer is reward. You have a better possession and an abiding one. In other words, and I don't think that's stuff, 
although I totally believe in the physical resurrection and the new heavens and the new earth, all of that, all of that will be stuff with which we are able to enjoy more of God. A better, did, did you, maybe you heard it, a better possession and an abiding one. Does that, do, do my gestures here look familiar? This is Psalm 1611. You show me the path of life in your, in your presence. In your presence, this is God, is fullness of joy, better possession, and pleasures forevermore, abiding one. That's the reward here. God's right hand. And I'm arguing if you forsake your pursuit of maximum enjoyment of that, you won't go to the prison. Or if you do, it will be legal. Not love. Because this says you had compassion and you went there and you joyfully looked over your shoulder and they were painting on your house, go home, Christian, and throwing bricks through the window. I assume that's what plundering of your property means or could have been an official confiscation. Either way, you lose. And all that loss, they counted gain because they were passionate to pursue their joy in all that God is for them in Jesus, some now, maximum later. Second text, chapter 11. Could look at several in 11, like six, but let's just go to 24. 11, 24. Same structure of thought 1,300 years earlier. My fa- by faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing to be mistreated with the people of God. That's exactly the same as going to the prison and having their property plundered. Choosing to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting, very important word, pleasures of sin. Oh, oh, sin offers pleasures. But those who have eyes to see, ears, know their Bible, they say, no way will I be deceived by a pleasure that's only going to last for 80 years. No way, let alone eight minutes in bed with a prostitute. (laughs) No deal. Such a stupid, asinine trade, right? This is insane to opt for fleeting pleasures. Praise God for Moses' eyes. Verse 6, 26. He considered the reproach of the Christ greater wealth. Weird, 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 wonderful than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Exactly the same structure of argument. That's the way you're going to love people. I mean, he was the meekest man on the planet, and he faithfully served this ragtag, rebellious, hard-hearted, stiff-necked people till the day he died, and he couldn't even go over to the promised land. How did he do that? It says... He looked to the reward. This is the way you survive, brothers. This is the way you survive. You're going to go through really, really hard times. And your people are going to be like that sometimes. Number three, chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Here we are at the center at the cross where we probably should end. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses... Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. How? How are you going to be motivated to do that? Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who, same structure, for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Now, I'm going to say something that I just hope rings and stays. Beware of being motivated more nobly than Jesus. Like selflessly, with no reward, no joy set before you at his right hand. Our Lord Jesus was carried through Gethsemane and the sweating of blood, 
and through the cross, which you cannot imagine by the joy that was set before him. So that as a man, he was like these Christians in chapter 10 and like Moses in chapter 11. Love flows over from joy in all that God is for us, we say, in Jesus. The greatest act of love that has ever been performed, namely Calvary, was carried, sustained by the pursuit of joy. He would be raised from the dead. He would be exalted to the Father's right hand. He would gather his elect from all the nations of the world. He would surround himself with a perfect and beautiful and praising people, which would be his joy forever. One more text, chapter 13, verses 13 and 14, and we'll be done. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. It's a perfect text to end oxygen on because this is a camp. So sweet and easy to be here. So easy. Get on a plane and have to talk to somebody. Not easy. Go back to a church where there's some problems. Not easy. So just adjust it to your situation. Let us go with him outside the camp and bear reproach he endured. How are we going to do that? For here we have no lasting city. We seek a city that is to come. So my thesis is that love is the overflow of joy in God that meets the needs of others. Love is the, is the effort in the face of, of, of the cross or any other opposition or pain to push into other people's lives to include them in our joy so that ours gets bigger as theirs is included in it. My year expectation and hope is that Christ might be magnified in my body and yours, whether by life or by death, for to us to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to remain in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, which I shall choose I cannot tell. My desire is to depart and be with Christ. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I am sure that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy of faith. That was Paul's reason for remaining on the earth. It's my reason for coming to Sydney. I pray that it will be your reason for going back to your churches for your advancement and joy of faith. We don't lord it over their faith. We are workers with them for their joy. You have powerfully ministered to me. Your singing will be what I remember. Especially when the instruments drop out on how great thou art. So thank you for sending me home fuller rather than emptier than when I came. Father, I just pray that all that they've heard from John Lennox, from me, and all that we've sung, all of it that accords with Scripture and nothing else, 
will remain and that it will produce an abundance of joy that flows over for churches and neighborhoods and nations to the glory of Jesus Christ, in whose name I pray. Amen.